Um, you, you know, there's really only uh, one fundamental way, or at least a foundational way, that we can and we must understand the earthly ministry of Jesus. His speech and his action, his willing death, his resurrection, and yes, his miracles, which are part of the whole story, part of all that he is helping us to see and understand. Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And Jesus is inaugurating and revealing the kingdom of God. This was the crux of his message. This kingdom is the otherwise unseen, spiritual, and heavenly reality that actually informs, that sustains all earthly reality in its present state. That's everything. And this is what Jesus came to announce. This is what Jesus came and inaugurated that this Messiah has arrived in him, and that this kingdom is the ultimate destiny of the whole world. And apart from him, we can't see, we can't hear, we can't believe, and we can't receive it. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is not just a Jewish holy man who provided a new social and moral ethic. Um, He's not an Eastern mystic or a miracle worker. Or in that day, they had Hellenistic miracle workers you know, in the Greco-Roman world. He's not an archetype of true humanness in relationship to the divine, you know, who's revealing like true, uh, he's revealing another spiritual pathway whereby humans can, through self-emptying, can relate to God. And he's not merely a divine transaction who is paying our debt for sin to give us eternal entrance into a celestial heaven. It's far more, far broader, far better than all of those. His healings are signs of the presence of this kingdom at hand, in our midst, among us. A kingdom that's always just behind the veil, so to speak, of our natural attention. This this kingdom that is sustaining the life of the whole world until its eventual full and final renewal. And it must be received by faith. By an active trust in Him by an active death and rebirth into a new way of listening, into a new way of seeing, a new way of speaking and acting. That is what our baptism signifies and our faith in Acts. It's good for us to make this clear every once in a while, right? This was the message of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, and Him as our entrance into it. Him as the fulfillment of Israel's long-awaited hopes, and Him as the ultimate fulfillment of of all the world's destiny. So like his miracles, followers of Christ are to be living signposts of this kingdom. I like the way Stephen Garber puts it, hints of hope. We join a community. It's part of it. A community that seeks, uh, that seeks to live as though the wholeness and the peace, the healing, the order, the dignity, and the unity of all things under Christ, these are a foregone conclusion by faith in our lives. It's the highest order of reality. We live into these things now in a kind of overlap, a present and future of heaven and earth. This is, in some ways makes us alien to the present, but also very important and very situated in the present. And that's the Christian life. Is that how you think of it? Living in this overlap and in this tension, so to speak. This is also how we make sense of suffering in our present age, the groaning and the grasping of our world. 
We suffer with the world. We suffer in the world as it is, knowing this is not the world as it will be. In this community, the church, the burden of one becomes the burden of all. The destiny of one becomes the destiny of all. In this community, we turn that groaning and that grasping of the world into prayer. Do you think of prayer that way, that we are taking the groaning and grasping of the world and and bringing it up to the Lord, who's the only one who can ultimately do and has done and will do anything about it? We're turning this into prayer and into loving action. While we lean into our faith, to do what? To listen ever more closely to the words of God. To know how to live the kingdom, to breathe the kingdom, we must continue to listen to the breath of God, by His Spirit, to the words of God, despite the noise of competing and contemporary ideas that always become ideologies as a result. So, in this Mark 7 miracle story, there is, the kingdom is being revealed, there is hope, right? There's fulfillment we see of Isaiah's prophecy that we read today, 35, I think it was, and of the psalm. But there's also a challenge for us. There's a challenge. This story has three rails, so to speak, and I want to talk about those three rails today. First of all, this healing is another witness to the fact that Jesus is able, Jesus is willing, and Jesus is determined to demonstrate his merciful and his compassionate power over the frailty, over the vulnerability of the physical human condition. He knows what it is to suffer, to be in pain, to have a cold, to be lonely, to have been rejected. So bodily restoration and wholeness, as prophesied in Isaiah and elsewhere, is one rail of his mission to reveal the kingdom. He is sovereign and good over our bodies. When Jesus heals, he pulls back the veil to reveal the kingdom in its fullness, where all ears are open and every tongue can sing. For the sake of detail, let's just address what Jesus is doing here with the spit. What he's doing, touching his tongue, putting his fingers in his ears. It's not that mysterious, really. He's communicating. He's communicating with someone who has trouble communicating. And, uh, you know, we're not talking about any type of sign language, but there are symbols that Jesus is invoking. He's, he's telling him what he's about to do. Spit was actually associated in some ways with medicine or with healing in that day. And we see Jesus employ this again later with, with a blind man. And so he's telling him by spitting, healing is coming, something good, something uh, medicinal, so to speak. And then he touches his tongue, right? He's going to heal his tongue, and then he puts his finger, fingers in his ears to signify that the man's speech and the man's hearing will be restored. Jesus is a, proclaiming what he's about to perform. The second rail of the story is this. In healing the disabled, Jesus liberates them from all the corresponding social stigma, the isolation, all the relational limitations, that, uh, many of which are the result of the systems that societies tend to make, that marginalize, that lack justice, that lack compassion, that lack care. And this man is, in fact, a victim of this. To be disabled pointed also to an assumed failure, to sin or to some curse. And so the desire for Jesus to lay his hands on this man as, his, as people bring this man to him, this desire would have been, in their minds, a blessing that might remove this curse, an act synonymous with or necessary for him to be healed. Touch him. 
Bless him so that the curse may be removed. When Jesus heals the man, he is restoring him to community. There are no barriers, there are no stigmas, there are no lesser thans or greater thans in the kingdom, this kingdom that indeed brings freedom and brings justice and brings dignity. And in this liberating move, what's happening? The future of God's equity is breaking into the present. So in these healings, we find hope, glimpsing the fulfillment of his promise to make all things, all people, all humanity new, restored, and unified. There's also a challenge, as I said, a gut check. It's the same for us as it was for the crowd who saw Jesus open deaf ears and loose this impeded tongue, but whose own open ears, and pay attention to this detail, whose own open ears and working tongues defied his instructions. Seeing and admiring Jesus is one thing. Believing enough to listen and obey is another. The third rail is the one we might conveniently overlook or avoid. Maybe you know the analogy, uh, and I think the third rail is important in the message of the Gospels. Uh, Third rail for a train is the one that's charged with electricity. Very often they're an overhead rail, so to speak, an overhead wire, and you don't touch it. Some issues for politicians are called a third rail. You just don't go there. But within this story, again, easily overlooked is this interaction with the people and their response. In the story, you might say the third rail is the response of people to Jesus' words and actions. Jesus charged them, right, according to Mark, and he kept on charging them. And the word is diastelomai, and it connotes this. And bear in mind how he pulled the man aside to heal him. That word means pulling them aside, or stepping aside and pulling them aside so that he can tell them something, to charge them with something. It describes the speaker pulling the listener aside. Mark likes the word. It's in, in, only in his gospel he uses it four times. And it has the weight of the commands of God in the Old Testament. When God pulls Abraham and Moses and Elijah aside to speak to them. It's also used in Acts 15 in this way. So this isn't just a, by the way, don't tell anybody. Or Jesus saying, hey, I don't want this to get out. They're overhearing him saying that. He pulls the crowd aside. He moves from the man, pulls him aside, and the charge he gives him is intentional, and it's serious. And we don't need to miss this. Some of you may relate, um, just thinking about this need to pull aside, you might relate to this ongoing reality that's in my home. The conversations that people are having with me, which I am not also having with them. It goes like this, Ashley or one of my children begins talking, but I do not begin listening. I'm engrossed in something else, I'm reading, I'm fixing an appliance, I'm answering an email, or I'm standing at the window staring a hole through the satanic squirrels that just keep eating all the meager stores of of pecans that we have. Our tree's doing great this year and the squirrels are ruining it and I'm just, I'm laser focused on the squirrels. And someone's talking, but I'm not listening. I'm engrossed in something else. It's not that I'm intentionally ignoring or uninterested. It's that they don't have my attention. If someone is in another room talking and my name is not called, they may as well be talking to the Lord Jesus, as far as I'm concerned. I don't know how to fix it or if it needs to be fixed. It's unconscious. And as with many things, though, a workaround is always helpful. 
when I hear lonely sentences being said upon the air, and I don't know who they're, they're being brought to in adjacent, you know, adjacent rooms and what have you, I increasingly try to ask, wait, are you talking to me? I want you to know that right now my wife is super triggered by what I'm talking about. But I also want you to know that we're working on it. She increasingly comes to me or says, Seth. I say, yes, dear. But it's not that she wants to have to do that, right? So Jesus is saying their name, so to speak. Jesus is getting their attention. He's being very deliberate here. He pulls them aside. He says, tell no one. And then with their functioning ears, they hear. And with their functioning tongues, they disobey. Hearers, but not doers. They had begged him to heal the man, Mark says, and Jesus obliged to heal him, yet they were not obliged to listen to Jesus, to obey a very clear instruction. They're beside themselves excited about what he's done. They're astonished beyond measure. And hey, they just wanted to talk about how he does all things well. What a great message. Maybe some thought, well, I'll just tell Bob, just Bob, maybe just Barb, but just those two. I'm just going to tell those two, nobody else. You know how that works, right? But verse 36 seems to suggest that Jesus is actually doing double duty to head off the headlines here. It reads, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Strange. Strange. Practically speaking, why might Jesus have told them to tell no one? To be sure, the, word, the more the word got out, the more quickly Jesus will become famous. But famous for what? What Jesus is being proclaimed. He will get more positive attention, but that might mean people will confuse him as just the next flashy miracle worker. There's always a risk of misrepresenting Jesus when he's reduced for wholesale consumption. This is the danger. And without a doubt, he'll soon get more negative attention because of what he's saying that accompanies the miracles, right? In turn, the cross of his suffering and his death are about to become more imminent. Now think about this with me. We know the cross came in the time and in the way that the Father ordained it. Not a minute sooner, not a minute later. Jesus uh, affirmed this reality. But ironically, it came quickly because they helped it to. This is important. Their disobedient exuberance, something as simple as, as ignoring his charge, hastened his death. And this is where we see the mysterious blend of God's sovereign timing and humanity's participation and manipulation. We see Christ's willing sacrifice, but at the active will of sinners for whom he died. We see the relationship of human agency and divine purpose. And this is the way God has ordained it. This is why obedience matters. This is why listening matters. Point being, this encounter we have in Mark 7 today is like so many others. Jesus is there to heal. Jesus is there to do justice. Jesus is there to liberate. But he's also there to be heard and he's there to be followed. Believed. Obeyed. Jesus is there to cultivate the faith of Israel by pruning away narrow expectations so, so that this old vine can grow new branches that can in turn bear new fruit, more fruit. And the way it happens is the same as it ever was. Beginning in Eden, God speaks. They must listen to God. They and we must have ears to hear 
and a heart to respond in obedience. Whatever God is saying. Jesus is illustrating the problem for which he died and its solution. Humans are alienated from God and his purposes and they aren't listening. Not responding in kind. As in our gospel reading last week, even the most seemingly religious people are denying the word of God for their own often well-meaning, exuberant versions of truth and reality. It happens to all of us. It's possible for all of us. Just like the crowd, the temptation for all of us is to have Jesus on terms that suit us, but that do not really serve us. And he came to serve us, if we will listen. We can give Jesus authority to heal and to advocate for this or that, but not to lead the parts of our lives in which we presume to know better than him. And in these areas, other voices are winning out. In a recent statistic from a Barna study that, uh, that said, uh, I heard, it said Christians consume about 3,000 hours of content per year, of which only 150 are related to Scripture. 20 to 1. We're always hearing something. But what? And to what end? And you might be taking it easy, Seth. Don't saddle us with that, man. You know, it, it's me too, right? But think about it. Think about it. Could it be that these compromised Christianities of both the left and the right, that we decry, maybe they are the fruit of this imbalance? When we find ourselves living on a steady diet of American politics and myopic cultural narratives, maybe that imbalance is part of the problem. Politicians, pastors, and yes, parishioners reading 3,000 hours of politics and culture into the gospel instead of the gospel into politics and culture. Think about it. Just think about it. How do we get here? How do we keep getting here? We've made a world where influence is undeservedly granted and readily available. Everyone is an expert, and so no one is, really. But we're listening. Voices are on the wind simply because it's blowing and people are listening. Authority has become a myth. We don't truly trust something, and so we believe anything. All content is created equal, so to speak, without anchor in any viable history, community, structure, tradition, or reason, without anchor in kingdom reality. Analogy. There are old cathedrals in Europe that are designed to echo so profoundly that each newly sung part layers over the one still resounding. Three or four things already sung. The building seems to pick up one part and sustains it as the background for the next. Layer upon layer, you hear the present stanza joining the path, the, the past, and both of them then making way for the future. In some of the best cathedrals, do you know when the last note is sung, you can still hear it ring for 10 full seconds? And the intention of that is about more than music. It's meant to convey that every voice singing, every voice proclaiming the gospel is necessarily joining a chorus that came before us and it will resound beyond us. It's an earthly and heavenly choir singing over both heaven and earth. And it's a song better than any one generation can write or rewrite. But do we hear it? 
Are we listening? Has it changed? There are no two ways about it. The whole of the gospel is actually arresting and it's humbling, but it still calls us to respond by listening. The kingdom has come and is coming on Jesus' terms, not ours. It pulls us aside. It charges us and invites us to participate. And we don't get to carve out our own slices of how we should respond, how we should treat others, how we should treat our bodies, how we should treat our money or our time, and other potential allegiances that we sort of smuggle in you know, to our saddlebag like, uh, like Rachel did with Laban's idols. We don't get to rewrite the song. We, don't, we only get to embrace every charge that Jesus brings lovingly. Everything Jesus graciously says when he pulls us aside to remind us of the part that we're meant to sing, our response as the kingdom is coming in our time. Friends, the very nature of the word of God, the reason it is so easily trivialized, resisted, and dismissed in our hearts is that it requires trust. Not certainty or even convincing. It requires trust. There's no changing that. It requires that we defer to the character of God, the charge of God that's witnessed through the generations, that's made known in the person of Christ, the healer, the redeemer, the liberator, and the proclaimer of his own life, death, and resurrection. So the question is, in our time, will we embrace a community with whom to listen for and join the full concerto of the gospel that just keeps ringing, even the truly sticky parts, this arrangement that calls for both justice and holiness, that calls for healing but also sacrifice. Will we live in limbo waiting for answers sufficient to our individualistic parameters? that we set for believing, and that we set for acting on that belief? Or will we join the chorus? As St. James puts it in our epistle today, will we receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls? Will we with new ears be hearers and doers? Is Jesus trustworthy in his charge his charge to depend on him, to feed on him, to tell his story as it really is? Are our ears truly open? Are our tongues available to say or not say what he has told us to say or not say? Are the people who've sung the song throughout the ages worthy of joining? Are they worthy of our humility? If not, who is? And what message is more worthy of proclaiming? What better news is there for the anxious heart in these anxious times than what Isaiah heard for the anxious and proclaimed and which came to be in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's the message. Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God has come in justice to save you. The eyes of the blind are being opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The tongue of the mute are singing for joy. Waters have broken forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Is there a better message? This is what he has charged us to proclaim and to live. This is what he has opened our ears and loosed our tongues to speak. This is our hope. This is our challenge and our calling. The Lord being our helper. Do you believe it? Lord, help us to believe it. We do live in an anxious age. We live in a confused age. But we thank you that you are neither one. And we thank you that you are calling us. 
Help us to listen. Help us to obey. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.